Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. We live uh, in a culture and a time period where we have so much information at our fingertips. Um, we have uh, social media platforms. They, they've kind of opened to us this, this common day experience of a front porch experience. You, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, the front porch of people's homes was a place to gather in community, to talk, to enjoy each other's company, to gossip about what was going on in culture and in society and specifically in our small towns. Well, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they've become the front porch of society today. Interestingly enough, they've become the front porch globally. Respect, however, for the dignity of people has taken a back seat. It's easier to speak against somebody when you can't see them face to face. It's easier to stand behind monikers and emojis and, and uh, avatars of who we want people to perceive us as being physically. It's easy for us to give fictional names to who we are because it's a way we can be in your face without anybody knowing it's us. How do you weed through what's going on in culture today? How do you know truth from fiction? How do you know what's right, what's wrong with regard to certain arguments? How do you navigate with, when somebody's telling you, this is really true, I'll stake my life on it, give me a Bible, I'll put my hand on it. How do you know that, it, that they're not pulling one over on you? How, how are we to understand when maybe somebody's not just demanding their own way because they want to get something out of it instead of actually telling us the truth? How do we know how to navigate conversations with people that are different from us? How, how do we communicate with those who may have very stark contrasting differences than we have? See, the church used to do very good at bridging the gap between Christ and the culture. Because we knew what Jesus did. Jesus went to the least of these. He never stereotyped the least of these. He never pointed a finger of condemnation at the least of these. He called out sin where he saw it, but he did it by speaking the truth in love. I've spoken this before, I'll speak it again. John 3, 16, what is it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John three seventeen. can you quote that by memory? 
for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. And then it goes into God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. We demand our own way often. We like to deceive to get our own way, or we'll tell partial truth. Because if we tell a partial truth, then that means we're not telling a complete lie. But in our family, we say a partial truth is as much a lie as a full-blown lie. And in God's economy, and in God's kingdom, a partial lie or a partial truth is a full-blown lie regardless. How do we come to this place in our context today? We've been looking at the story of Jacob. How, do, how does all of this fit into the context of Jacob? Well, Jacob was always out for number one. And we've been, we've been told in our culture that's what we should be. Look out for number one. Nobody else is going to look out for you. We have this pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality. And though there's some positives to that in this individuality, there's some also great detriment when it's devoid of a faith in Jesus Christ. If you have a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality devoid of a faith in Jesus Christ, then it becomes arrogance and pompousness. But if you truly believe that, yes, the responsibility lies with me to get up and to move forward, that's good. If it's in a faith in Christ, then you know that he is with you along the way. We come to the story of Jacob. We've looked over the past two weeks. This is the third week in this series. And Jacob tricked his brother out of his birthright as firstborn son, which, and again, I'll just give you a brief synopsis here. The firstborn son in the Jewish culture and in most Middle Eastern cultures of that time, and I think even today, the firstborn son would get two-thirds of the dad's estate when he died. He would also become the judicial person of the family, basically telling what was right and wrong, and also would be the priest of the family, helping to guide the family in spiritual matters. So, the firstborn son would want be the one to take over, but also would get, again, the lion's share of the, the wealth from the father. The remaining sons after that would get a third of the estate divided evenly amongst themselves. So Jacob is a twin of Esau. And ironically, though they are born virtually at the same time, Esau comes out first, making him the firstborn son. But to not be bested by his brother, he's grabbing onto the heel of Esau as he comes out. Imagine this, the midwife or whomever's helping uh, give birth to these kids sees this hand. Thus, Jacob gets the name heel grabber, because that's what Jacob means. And I've said this in the past two weeks, if your name is Jacob, it's no offense, it's a beautiful name. All right? But in this context, he gets the name Esau, gets the name Esau because he comes out, he is a hairy beast. How many of you have had hairy kids? You know, they come out and they are just, they look like an animal. <laughs> you may not want to admit that in this place right now, but I'm sure you're kind of leaning over and said, yeah, my baby was so hairy. But he comes out, he's hairy, and it's all red hair. So Esau is given the name Esau because of his red hair. 
They are two different people born at two different times, even though seconds apart. Esau's born first, firstborn child. Jacob knows that he's a firstborn child, but he wants what he wants. He wants to have the power, the authority. He wants to have it all. And so his brother comes in from a day of hunting because he's the mighty hunter, Esau is. And Jacob's the guy that stays around at the tents. And he's cooking a pot of stew. Esau comes in, he's famished. Give me a bowl of soup, Esau says to Jacob. And Jacob's sitting there thinking, huh, now's an opportunity. Have you ever said this to your sibling who wanted something of yours? Well, what are you going to give me in return? I'll make a trade with you. And so Jacob says, give me your birthright. Give me your rights as a firstborn son and I'll give you a bowl of soup. Esau gets kind of ticked off as any sibling would at their brother. He says, are you stupid? No, he doesn't say that. Okay, read it and find out what he says. But he basically says, what does my birthright mean to me? I mean, dad is still young. We're even younger. That's a long way off before I get my birthright. Just give me a bowl of soup. Come on. Swear to me that you'll give me your birthright. Whatever, fine. And so Esau swears to give him his birthright because, you know, it's so far down the road, anything can happen. Jacob could die between now and then. What do I care? I want a bowl of soup. I'm hungry. How many of you have been driven by your stomachs? And later on in the story, Isaac is getting older. Isaac is Esau and Jacob's father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know the story. So Isaac is getting older, his eyesight's getting bad, more than likely scholars think he had cataracts because he just couldn't see very well in his old age. And so Jacob is told by his mother, Rebecca, hey, I overheard Isaac, your father and your brother Esau talking and Isaac's going to bless him. And the blessing will seal this promise that God has given us through our father Abraham, that we will become uh, an amazing nation. And, and I wanted to go through you is basically what she's setting him up for. I don't want it to go through Esau. Because remember, Rebecca loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. Do you think there was any dysfunction in that family? Yeah. A little bit, right? Uh, I mean, this is a perfect picture and case study in psychology of a dysfunctional family. And of course, I know none of us in this place have dysfunctional families, but we can learn from the story of Jacob. And so anyway, Rebecca overhears this and she starts scheming. She says, Jacob. Esau's going out to hunt so he can make your father his favorite meal. And then after he eats it, he's going to give him the blessing. Here's what I'm going to do. Go out and get me a couple goats from among the flocks. Bring them in. I'll cook up his favorite meal. And you go before him because he's blind as a bat. He's not going to see you anyway. And he will give you the blessing. Have you ever despised your spouse so much? You think that's what God intended? See, it's all about this trust in God versus the trust in man. So she makes the soup, the stew, from this wild game called goats, which isn't wild at all. But it smells good. And who else is driven by their stomach but Isaac? Jacob brings him the meal. 
But Jacob protested to Rebecca before he went. Uh, how's he going to? I, I, I have soft and smooth skin like a baby's butt. And Esau is very hairy. And uh, he's going to tell, tell that it's me and not him. And he knows our voices, Mom. I, I'm not going to be able to pull this over on him. And so she took the goat hides and she fashioned these, these arm pieces and, and on the back of his neck. Hairy necks are amazing, right? And she puts this goat skin with the hair on there. And so he goes in, and, and not only that, she has him wear Esau's clothing so that it has the smell of Esau on it. It takes some convincing, but uh, after smelling Esau's clothes, Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. And it's almost within minutes Esau comes back. He prepares a meal, takes it to his father. But the blessing's already been given. And instead of giving Esau a blessing, it's more like a curse, if you read the story. Rebecca says, you need to get out of here, because Esau has determined he's going to kill you if he gets his hands on you, and he just might do it. So why don't you go to my uncle's house? His name's Laban. He lives way out east. Head out that way, find him, stay with him until your brother cools off. And this is where we pick up the story today. The story starts in Genesis chapter 29. Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east, of the east, he saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. I, I just, I'm sorry, I'm very visual, so I'm getting this picture of a watering can, <laughs> but that's not what they mean. They're going to give them water to feed, to, to drink from a trough, but I, I'm still, the way it reads, it's just, let me continue. <laughs> Waiting to be watered, but a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. Heavy stone. In order to keep uh, this, the, the well secured and keep people from falling in it, they would put a really heavy flat stone over the well. And it would usually take several men to lift it off. It was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. Afterward, the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? Well, we're from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man here named Laban, the grandson of Nahor? He asked. Yes, we do, they replied. Well, is he doing well, Jacob asked. Yeah, he's well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with the flock now. Got to be careful how you say that. Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals. Why don't you water the sheep and goats so they can get back out to pasture? We can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived, they replied. Then the shepherds moved the stone from the mouth of the well, and we water the sheep and the goats together. Jacob was stalled talking with them when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And, Rachel, and because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and the goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. I think this is interesting, because in the past two uh, sermons, we've gotten this picture of Jacob as being this weakling. 
He's this weakling who has silky smooth arms and a body to boot, uh, and he stays at the tents. He doesn't go out and hunt. And we get this picture. Why? Because we stereotype by outward appearances that Jacob is weak and limp, and Esau is this manly man with hair all over his body. But Jacob goes over and without any assistance removes the stone from the top of the well. It's like he has superhuman strength. That's what love does. It gives you extra adrenaline. Then after he had done that, get this. <clears throat> now there was such a thing as a kiss. You greet each other with a kiss. You cheek, 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 right? But we don't get that here. It almost seems as though <laughs> he kisses her square on. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept out loud. Now, all right, so now we're getting back, back to more of the picture of Jacob. <laughs> I mean, can you, all right, stop for a minute. I, again, I told you I'm very visual here. And, and imagine, ladies, you go out on a first date with a guy, he kisses you and he begins to weep out loud. <laughs> what would you do? Again, my imagination goes crazy with these. He explained to Rachel that he was her cousin. Oh my gosh, you just kissed me and you're my cousin. It was okay back then. I promise you. He explained to Rachel he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of her aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father Laban. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced him, kissed him, and brought him home. He didn't weep, however. When Jacob told him his story, Laban exclaimed, You really are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, You should work for me. Uh, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. And, and, and Jacob has been thinking after his weepy kiss <laughs> that he's got a deal. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. My version says there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but some versions say her eyes were soft or delicate. Some versions say they were weak. Almost gives you this picture that she had a lazy eye or something. But that's not what it's intending to say. Hear me out here. The Hebrew here is so difficult to translate because there's really no equivalent into the English language. We'll come back to that. Just store that away in the back of your mind. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, <clears throat> here's the deal, I'll work with you for seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. It was okay for cousins to marry in that day. Agreed, Laban replied, didn't miss a beat. Boom. We'll come back to that in a minute too. Why did he agree so quickly? I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. Jacob worked for seven years to pay for Rachel. He's not buying her as a servant. Keep this in mind. There was a bride price to be paid in that culture. Again, we'll come back to that in a moment. But he worked for seven years 
to earn her. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him like only a few days. Oh, women, it's time to swoon. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can marry her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. And these weddings would go on forever. The wedding ceremony itself would be a week long, and the, and the, the, the celebration would, could go on for months. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, in that culture, the, the husband and wife were not allowed to be an effectual part of the community for a solid year. It doesn't mean that they were to sit around and be lazy, but they were given such a light load, it's as if they weren't really contributing to the community for a year, the whole year, because they were to focus on building a family together. But that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. (coughs) You got that right. How could he not know? It's because they didn't do premarital sex back then. Oh! And I know this is such a taboo topic in our culture, but God's word is still timeless. Premarital sex is sexual infidelity, sexual immorality, all of that stuff. It's in the camp of sexual immorality, no matter how old-fashioned you think it is. And so he could be duped because it's in the dark of night. She comes in. He's never slept with her before, so how is he to know it's not Rachel? Now, he he can feel a figure, but he can't see a figure. He can't see eyes, so he's not even sure what's going on there. But when Jacob, oh, wait a minute, but that night it was dark. Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpha, to be her maid. The story just continues to get I say better. It gets, you got to read this. It's, it's better than a soap opera. I'm not kidding. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Because sex consummated the marriage, and divorce was really not allowable, even in that culture at that time period, Jacob knew the commitment he made through the contract of sex with his now new wife, Leah. And he's furious. How could you do this to me? And I'm wondering when the light bulb went on in Jacob's mind. Oh. I tricked my brother a couple times, and my dad. (laughs) Oopsie. (laughs) What is Laban's response to all this mess? He says, well, it's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn. But wait until the bridal week is over, and then we'll give you Rachel too. Provided you promise to work for me another seven years. How much is two sevens? Fourteen. 
So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. And a week after Jacob had Jabed, sorry, a week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. So now he has two wives. That was what's the deal with that? Oh, God must be okay with polygamy. Actually, no, you don't see anywhere that God shows up in this picture. See, this is what happens when we decide to take matters into our own hands. So after a week, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. Here's the one phrase. In case you fall asleep beyond this point, this is what I want you to take home. Demanding our own way diminishes the value of others. When we demand our own way, when we work and scheme to get what we want, when we want it, the way we want it, it ultimately will diminish the value of others because we put ourselves in a position of authority above others when we demand our own way. We're basically saying, we're more important than you, so I want what I want and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And what that ultimately does is that diminishes the value of others. This close-knit family connection isn't as it seems. Deception and selfishness riddle the relationships in this narrative to the point that people ultimately get hurt in the process. Have you ever seen this in your own life? Or at least in those around you? The front porch scenario in this story is more of a game of chess of who will win in the long run. So how does deception do this? There are very quickly two points this morning. The first one is Laban's daughters are pawns in his game of deceit. When others become a means to an end rather than people worthy of respect as the image bearers of God, then we've stepped out of God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Laban's complete disregard for his daughters, both of them, and for their well-being is nothing more than pawn shifting. Think of the game of chess. What do we do with, with, with the game of chess? Some of you may, may have never have played it, but in the game of chess, you have a front row and a back row. There are two rows of pieces. The front row are called the pawns, and you have way more pawns than you have other pieces on the board. And why is that? There are way more pawns than you have the other individual pieces. Why is that? Because the pawns are expendable. Laban is using his daughters as pawns to get what he wants out of Jacob. Can you imagine Jacob working for 14 years, basically free labor for Laban? Now, don't get me wrong. I think Laban loves his daughters, but, but there seems to be something more here. In the Jewish culture at that time, and also the many other cultures surrounding them, it was customary for a dowry to be paid to the father as a bride price for marriage. Enter Jacob onto the scene. He comes from his, mother, or his mother's house, Rebekah, which is Laban's sister. He shows up with nothing. Sure, he'd stole the birthright and the blessing, but his dad is still alive. What does he come with? Nothing. So, what is Jacob to do? Because if it was customary to give the bride price and he had nothing to give, then what was he to give? He could give himself. Now, the bride price wasn't always a steep, expensive price. I was reading up on this, and the bride price could be as small as a, as a copper coin. 
And did you know the woman had the right to accept it or refuse it? So just in case you're curious that she was being bought as a slave, she wasn't. She had the right to choose whether or not she wanted to be with him. But now look at the scenario. What's going on here? Jacob wants Rachel. It's the wedding night. I'm assuming Rachel wants Jacob too. But who gets slipped into the tent in the dark of night? Yeah. Ladies, how many of you would want to be with a man who didn't want you? How many of you would want to be with a man who loved your sister more than he loved you? Do you see how twisted this gets? And do you see what Laban is doing? Laban's not looking out for Leah. He doesn't care. And there was really no written code about the older daughter being married before the younger daughter. It may have been customary in that town, but it was not an overarching law. And he uses Rachel to get another seven years out of Jacob. How would you feel, ladies? Imagine being used by your father to trick a guy into marrying you. How would you, would you feel valued? Would you feel demoralized? Would you feel used? Would you feel, how would you feel towards your dad? Toward Jacob. I mean, Jacob's innocent, at least in this context, because he thinks he's getting Rachel, the woman he loves. Puts Jacob in a very precarious position. How would you feel towards your sister? Laban's game of deceit showed how little he cared for his daughters and how much he cared for himself. There's no written custom here. He just wanted what he wanted. He was demanding his own way, and it hurt the ones that loved him the most and that he loved the most, or seemingly. But if he truly loved them, would he have really done this? No. Number two, of the two daughters, Leah's worth is greatly devalued by both Laban and Jacob. Now, Jacob gets a little bit of a free pass here because he didn't think he was marrying Leah. He thought he was marrying Rachel, but we'll get back to that. Leah's value was diminished even more than Rachel's due to an issue of outward beauty. Again, remember, I said we'll come back to it. It said her, she had no sparkle in her eyes. Some people think she had weak eyes, delicate eyes. The, the more translations that I looked at, actually, it's better to say that she had beautiful eyes. Not, no sparkle, not a weak eye, not a lazy eye. She didn't have, she had beautiful eyes. Now, juxtapose that against what's said about Rachel. Leah has beautiful eyes, but man, Rachel's a knockout. Look at the curves on her. That's basically how that reads, because it says she is a beautiful figure. It's like saying, oh, what do you think about so-and-so? Oh, they got a nice personality. <laughs> do, do, you know, do, you, do you catch what's going on in the context here? Rachel and Leah next to each other. They're both beautiful in their own way, but Rachel 
has the body to go with the eyes. And Leah just has the eyes. Jacob's attracted to Rachel. He's not attracted to Leah. It happens. We are attracted to our spouses. What attracted you to them to begin with? Maybe it wasn't an outward appearance. Maybe it was the connection that you'd made over a period of time. That you saw the deeper beauty laden within. But Jacob loved Rachel. Leah must have known what was going on. She must have known that her sister was beautiful. Leah more than likely compared herself to her sister many times growing up. How many of you have compared yourself to your siblings before? Oh, they're the favorite. I'm hearing some groans already. Deep-rooted insecurities may have dominated her life, so much so that she felt she had no other alternative than to go through with her father's twisted plan. I've seen so many abusive situations, not physically, but emotionally abusive situations, where children grow up believing the lies that are told them, even by the ones that love them the most, that they believe that they're not worth it, that, they're, that they don't have value. And, and you know what ends up happening? They began not only to believe those lies, but they owned them. And they owned them so much so that the, the deep roots of that devaluing process has made them so overwhelmingly insecure that they'll do whatever they're told because they don't think they're worth anything to begin with. I guess this is all that's cut out for me. I guess this is all I was made for. When a person feels devalued, they often give in to the lies they're told by others or the lies they feel about themselves. Insecurities that are deeply rooted often lead a person to do things they would not normally do. If you feel worthless, then you ultimately end up doing worthless things. Let me say that again. If you feel worthless, you ultimately end up doing worthless things. And what of Laban? Laban more than likely had one thing in mind. He, he suspected that Leah would be difficult to marry off, possibly. He may have known that he could get something more out of the deal with Jacob if he did a two-for-one. Whatever the case, Laban threw discretion to the wind and used Leah to his advantage rather than considering her worth and value and dignity, and even Rachel's. When we fail to honor others because of the way they look, we lose sight of the unique individuality of God's divine imprint on their soul. How often <clears throat> have we made internal judgments about another person all because of the way they look? I don't look like a pastor. I don't often act like a pastor. More often than not, people question, are you the youth pastor there? <laughs> no joke. I don't dress in suits and ties unless it's for a wedding or a funeral. I said that when I first came here, and it still makes people mad. Because it's more the outward appearance that's of concern to some than the inward character. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand appearances do give first impressions. But if we're always looking at outward appearances, 
then what ends up happening is we diminish the value of another because we put them in these certain camps in our mind. How often have we stereotyped and categorized people into certain camps in our minds without giving them the dignity afforded them as the people who bear the very image of God? Now, they, listen, they're not perfect, but neither are you, neither am I. But God created them. The psalmist says he knit them together in their mother's womb. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. But when we devalue life by what we think is real life, because we've convinced ourselves that some people are worth more than others, then we've stepped into the camp of the enemy who is Satan, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's a subtle move. It's a very subtle move. But the enemy is a great deceiver. Where do you think all deceit and lies come from? He is the father of lies, Jesus says. And as the father of lies, he can tempt us to believe things that are not true. Or he can twist just a little bit of the truth to, to have enough truth in there to, that we say, oh, okay, well, that does make sense. Even though there's a check in my spirit about the other little part of that. But, you know, that person must know more than I do. And we believe hook, line, and sinker, the lies of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. What do you think our culture is in the mess that it's in today? Because just a little bit of a shift and a tweak in the truth over a period of time can get us so out of whack and so off course that we have no direction or no clue of what direction we're going. We don't know what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong, what's left, what's right. The enemy gets us so polarized against each other that we're fighting against each other in political parties. And how stupid is that? And we buy it. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent. I don't care if you're a goose hunter or have smooky silk skin. <laughs> smooky. I just made it. It's smooth and silky. You can put that in your dictionaries. Smooky. <laughs> you're welcome for that little nugget today. Let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's the content of the character. And some people are characters. We ourselves have been characters at times. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the closing illustration. Things bought at a garage sale. Have you ever bought things at a garage sale? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you pay top dollar? Definitely not. And even though it's already at a really cheap price, what do you try to do? You try to bargain and get them down even lower. There was this Chinese bowl bought by a New York family in 2007. It became famous in April of 2013. The new owners paid just $3 for this bowl that ended up turning out being a Northern Song Dynasty piece that was more than 1,000 years old. 
until someone told them what they really had. The family had the bowl stuck on the mantle over the fireplace. When they placed the bowl in Sotheby's auction house for sale, it was estimated to go for approximately $200,000. Instead, a dealer from London purchased it for more than $2 million. Why would the first owner sell something so valuable for just $3? Because they didn't realize the worth when it was in their possession. We may shake our heads, but the truth is that every day men and women give up things far more valuable than money could ever buy for something that is so ultimately worthless. Because of the lies of the enemy that seek to steal, kill, and destroy trip us up to believe that we're buying something precious when it's nothing but a piece of garbage. And, it, and he teases us and tricks us to believe that what we're giving up is nothing but garbage when in actually it's actu all actuality is priceless. How do you feel about yourself today? You see, I think the biggest problem in our society today is not politics. It has to do with insecurities, if I'm being honest, because at the root of sin is insecurity. I think all sin is rooted not only in selfishness, but insecurity, because we believe the lie that if we do this one thing or get this one thing or just do a little bit of this or that, then our life's going to be better. And we buy into the lie that we're, we're, we're purchasing something of worth when actually we're purchasing trash and we're giving away something of worth that is more priceless than anything else. What do you think Jesus died on the cross for? Because he sees you and I as priceless, that he was willing to give his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, have an opportunity for eternal life. That's how much he loves us, and that's how much he sees in us. But my guess is that a high percentage of you in this place have such deeply rooted insecurities by the things that people have said about you or by the things that you have believed about yourself. I remember when I first decided to give in to the call of ministry on my life. I was 19 years old, just broken up from a girlfriend I thought was going to be my wife. My life had completely fallen apart. And when I decided to leave, I remember my ex-girlfriend's mother saying, he's not going to amount to anything. He's going to keep you barefoot and pregnant for the rest of your life, and he's going to devalue you. And I remember telling, I probably told you this before, my dad, not a Christian at the time, said, why are you going to give in to all those lies? That is so stupid. You're going to do what? Where? You're going to be a pastor. Uh, believe in that fake crap all you want to until you wake up and you have no money, you have no life because you've given yourself over to something that's so utterly stupid. And so I left home with that baggage. Pursuing a call into ministry and carrying the deep hurts and wounds from people that had spoken lies into my life. And it took me a couple decades to work through that. And at times, they still want to rear their ugly head in my life. Whenever I do mess up or I say something I shouldn't have or whenever I parent the way my dad parented me and I said I would never do that. 
And then I start to say, well, you're stupid. Why do you even think you can be a good dad? Oh, you're an idiot. How do you even think you could be a good pastor? You're right. You don't fit the mold. You're not the right person for the job. You might as well just resign and let somebody else take over. You're not a good husband. You're not a good person in society. And you believe the lie instead of believing the truth that God so loved you that he was willing to give himself for you. That he saw you as more worth than any amount of gold, diamonds within all of creation. He sees you as the epitome of desire for him. He wants you and me. And if you don't believe that, you continue to perpetuate the lie in your own life. But here's the deal, and I said this last week, and we'll close with this as the worship team comes forward. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. John chapter 8, there's freedom in Christ. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Matthew chapter 11, if any of you is weary and heavy burden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm meek and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, everything in the gospel message is about you giving up all the baggage you've carried for all these years and the lies that have weighed you down, and you take up the burden of Christ, which is light. That helps you to stand straight and tall, not with arrogance, but with confidence in the salvation the Lord gives through His Son. That you can walk in grace and forgiveness, knowing that you are a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If that is something you want to be your testimony today, even if you're a believer in Christ and you've continued to believe the lies of the enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, leave that baggage here. Leave those lies here. Allow those strongholds to be broken because God wants to deliver you from that junk in your life. And He wants to set you free. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We need you. And God, help us to discern truth from lies. I know we do that by seeking you through your word. But even in the meantime, for those of us that aren't Bible scholars, give us a check in our spirit to know right from wrong. Fill us with your truth. Help us to understand that Satan is the father of lies, but you are the way, the truth, and the life. We love you, Father. Set us free from sin and death. Set us free from baggage and bondage. Set us free from insecurities. Oh, God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. 
Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Maine, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.